okay. We're good to go whenever you guys are. All right, everyone ready? Hit it. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Awesome Book Club. We're really excited to have you all listening. We read an amazing book uh, called An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. And wow, what an amazing book. Um, I got so much from this book. I learned so much about history. Uh, and I'm really excited to talk about the book with you and three of my best friends. Um, I'm your host this week, Taylor Bukite, joined by some of my best friends. So, Rhett, why don't you take it away? Say hello. Hey, guys. I'm Rhett. Hey, everybody. I'm Kurt. Like a whale waking up in the morning. What it do, Ocean Blue? My name's Danny. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to kick it off and just get started with your overall impressions of the book. Um, From the title, uh, you guys who have not read the book, uh, just a a quick synopsis. This is basically um, the history of America um, as told from an indigenous people's perspective. So it's not your standard make America great again history of the United States. This is a a different perspective. And to go along with just what this podcast is about, we wanted to learn a little bit more about how the Native Americans uh, see the the history of the U.S. Um, So first takes, what were you guys' thoughts, Rhett? Uh, One word. Damning. Yes. <laughs> Kurt, what do you, yeah, what did Whoa. you think? <laughs> I, my word would be violence. And so very similar to Rhett. I was just, I, I read 1491. That's probably the most like this book I, I've read. And I feel like this book basically said, yeah, disease. Okay, that's one part. Sure. But it was the genocide. That's why the Native Americans aren't where they were. And it just like example after example of settlers and frontiersmen just like murdering women and children. So, so much of so much of senseless violence. Yeah, I think my interpretation of it was fascinating, enlightening and and definitely in line with what you guys were saying as well. For me, hearing these things and, and these perspectives, some statistics, one of the things that really stood out to me was the population of the United States before settlers got here. And I was looking for it before we started. I'm pretty sure it was 100 million. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, they said at one point, I think it was in the 16th century before like most of the settlers came through to America, the population in the Americas was 100 million. The population of Europe was 50 million, which is insane. Yeah. In fact, um, pre-Columbus, one of the largest cities on the planet was where uh, modern day St. Louis is. And um, it had a population that uh, I think is bigger than modern day London. I, maybe I misinterpreted that, but it definitely was bigger than London at some point throughout history, <laughs> which I guess is I, pretty broad. But I think it was at the time it was bigger than London, which... Is crazy, like knowing the the what the population of the world was at that point. I mean, like at the start of the 1900s, there were less than a billion people in the world. So at that time, to say like 
you know, 16th century, they had hundreds of thousands of people bigger than London. It was crazy. Yeah. And what's more is, for some reason, it's not taught in history class, and obviously we're going to get into a lot of that, but uh, there are plenty of white man's um, diaries that, I, and Kurt kind of probably got this from 1491, which I also read, but they describe the Americas uh, basically as a bustling anthill. There was so many people visible from even off the shore. And just to kind of finish my thought on what it meant to me, that was something that I didn't understand about the United States before settlers got here. You think of the Native Americans populating the country as there are these sparsely spread out tribes uh, on plains and you run into them every once in a while. But it was like, no, if you look at the population of the United States, I think I went back and it was in the 1950s, we're seeing a population similar to what the population of the United States was before settlers came here. So I think having that perspective was like, whoa, how did I never know that? And I felt so, it felt so good to know that. It felt so good to understand the how the roots of colonialism still exist in, in some of our thought processes today and where that came from and where that started. And I think it, it just really opened my mind up. And that's, that's what I took away from it. And yeah, just to add on, 1491 gives a really good description of this. And just you talking about like the Plains Indians being what we think of as Indians. And 1491 basically says, imagine if everyone on the coasts and all the big cities you can think of of the U.S., goes away and dies and like the only thing that's left is wyoming and someone visits and they're like oh this is what the u.s is it's these people kind of spread out living in the middle of nowhere it would yes it would be true at that point but it's missing the fact that all these huge population centers were decimated without knowing that you're just judging from like a, 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 a incorrect starting point basically yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna dive in a little bit um I think so. This book is basically told uh, starting from pre colonialist America all the way through modern day. And what I want us to talk about a lot and, and really just emphasize is this book really demystifies the American myth that's told. And I think a lot of the reason why all of us were surprised in reading this is just that we've not really been taught enough, you know? We always like we have this idea in our head, and, and this uh, continues throughout, na like now, just that America like is set apart from all the other countries in the world, and like we always do things in the name of good, and this book just rips that apart, um, and and I really found the beginning fascinating, just like you guys, um, because. It's basically described like America was described as this very like picturesque place where the Native Americans were very in tune with nature, but they had a good hold on managing it. Right. Like uh, there was this talk about some of the the forest area in the northeast of the United States area. And they, they talked about when the settlers came over, it was like pristine. Everything was managed impeccably. And it was done so intentionally to try and, you know, everything they done they did to, with nature had a purpose. You know, they used fire oftentimes to kind of like tame the land, but they did it in a way to like bring herds closer to their civilization and, and 
all of that kind of stuff. Um, it also just was surprising and fascinating learning that there were vast trade networks. Uh, you know, their irrigation systems were very advanced. And so, like, you kind of get this picture, when, like, before Europeans came over, that this was an advanced society. Go ahead, Danny. And just to add on to that, uh, one of the things that I thought was really fascinating, especially compared to what we're looking at today, is where she starts to discuss their governance and how it was very much, I mean, it was the ultimate democracy. Um, and one of the things that the, the settlers had trouble with is they couldn't manipulate these tribes because they couldn't find somebody to bribe into uh, being controlled. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And that's something, too, just throughout the book. Um, the way that the author frames kind of the differences between the European settlers and the Native Americans was that there was so much respect and honor in the Native American uh, civilizations. Like, you know, how many times in this book did she talk about treaties that, that the U.S. made with Native American tribes and then they just didn't <laughs> didn't follow them at all? You know, yeah. So, what what were some of the things that you guys like really struck home with you and and were really interesting about that first part? I, I know we talked about a lot of them already, but uh, favorite part? Yeah, like so. I mean, the book is divided. You basically have like the pre-colonialism where everything basically it's like everything is awesome, <laughs> and then here comes the the Europeans. And everything changes. I yeah, I just to back up your point, I'm always fascinated reading more about how indigenous people were shaping the land and working with the land. And I think that it's it's not our current standing or our possibly made up understanding that they just like left it alone and they just had these tracts of lands that they didn't even touch and it was pristine. They managed it for the purpose of their civilization while still mostly making it sustainable. And of course, they still, we learned in Sapiens, they wiped out a lot of species. So it wasn't, it wasn't a total success for sure. But the idea that this land was like undeveloped and unsettled and unchanged from, you know, the original and the natives had done nothing with it is like so insulting, you know, and it's just so untrue look what they did in 10,000 years and look how they were able to kind of continue reaping the benefits of the land without totally wrecking the soil, wrecking the environment. And then in 50 years or in 200 years of the same processes, we've like managed to destroy a lot of the country. There's this idea, like we still often hear the term, the new world. And that basically makes us think that it was uninhabited. When that's clearly not the case, um, which kind of brings us just to the next section about the Europeans coming over to the United States, um, the Americas, and basically, you know, under the premise that this land is not occupied by whites, so therefore it is open for taking. And one of the things, this is a very long section. I mean, we're glossing over chapters like crazy, but there's a very long period in the middle of the book that just goes on. And it's like over and over and over 
number of ways that settlers continued to expand west and just wipe out tribes and you know innocent basically um, one of the things that I found most fascinating about it was the idea that colonialism had been a, a practice that had been going on for centuries that the Europeans put on like she compares um, the Crusades as being practiced for what's happening in Americas in the Americas and also um, in Britain, Ireland and Scotland as as basically having the same type of things and all of these were basically practice for what's going to happen in in the new world quote unquote it makes see that's the same thought that kind of and this is a huge stretch so feel free anybody to jump in or chime in but obviously like i've been with the recent news i've been analyzing the gun debate um pretty thoroughly and uh, a lot of the uh, you know, and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but there is that like specific type of person that we all know that's got their like arsenal of weapons. They always have this, this same idea about like, you know, they got their bug out bag packed and they've got provisions like buried out in the woods. You know, you have that practice in the crusades and you have the practice in the, uh, you know, in Ireland and Scotland. And then you have the practice displacing indigenous Americans and so on and so forth, and pushing further and further into the frontier. And now here we are, there's no more frontiers, and everybody wants to pretend that there's some cowboy or, or Davy Crockett type figure going out into the woods to slay the bad guys and do all this stuff. And I've always wondered if that's like not actually a huge part of this like fantasy that comes with being like a gun person, quote unquote. And I don't mean to you know paint with a broad brush. There are plenty of gun people that are good people. Um, but there is like this weird fantasy, I think, that comes with uh, a lot of these types of people. It's, you know, they want to they want to go out and they want to they're always ready for that bad guy, you know, up in the woods. They're going to fight the government. They're going to do all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. Go ahead, Danny. And I think on top of that, what I found very interesting was she talks about how colonialism started in that in, you know, in in Great Britain, in the U.K., uh, you develop kind of this feudal system where land is a sign of social social status and hierarchy. And in order to satisfy everybody's need to have social status or hierarchy, you needed more land to be able to divide up two people, which is why we, we moved over to the United States, we know it now, or North America. And I thought that was really interesting to consider um, because that just really paints a picture where we think of our, our roots coming from running away from these ideals that that inhibited us, right? And actually, we were just carrying over those same ideals. It was more so that we we weren't able to be a part of those ideals that were making us or well making certain peoples lesser. So we wanted to give ourselves the opportunity to make other people lesser. And it's kind of everything we've done since has been an extension of that drive. Yeah, one thing that was really interesting just about the kind of colonization of Ireland and Scotland was she talked a lot about the Scots-Irish, I think is what she called them, um, which essentially they were the colonized people of Great Britain. And when it kind of came about that the new world was found, like this was an opportunity for them, for, you know, the English or whatever to basically be like, well, you know, now you can be a problem somewhere you can 
you guys can go over and get your own land, you know, in the new world. And there's this, there's this theme throughout the book that basically is, is talking about the Scots Irish and how those people were some of the most common settlers always pushing farther West and how ruthless they were in battle. And that's part of the reason that like so much, like she kind of places blame on them a little bit for some of the brutality that happens. Um, not to mention the fact that she says 17 of, of our presidents uh, were Scots-Irish. So it's just like a core piece of American history. Go ahead, Kurt. Yeah, it really makes me think about trauma being passed on through generations. So your homeland is attacked and you see your family die and you lose your land. And so you immigrate to this new place and you're told by everyone, hey, there's land out there, go and get it. You can finally have what you want. And people are so caught up in that. I want to finally get mine. I want to get revenge that they don't recognize that they're just passing on the trauma that they encountered to like another population who's going to be similarly impacted. That's It's really sad to see that trauma just kind of cascade down. Yeah. And unfortunately, because, you know, the Americas were kind of one of the final frontiers, there wasn't a place for the Native Americans to go. So then you have this whole dilemma that's continuing today where we've made these reservations, basically. Uh, we've made all these treaties with the Native Americans saying like, well, you can have this chunk of land, which typically it's not even like land that their tribe was on. They get displaced and put just kind of somewhere. And that land continues to shrink and shrink. And so we're kind of left with this really awful situation that has never really been resolved. And, and one thing that I thought about throughout reading this book was Americans, they, so she talks about how Americans kind of tend to think of the good, quote unquote, you know, like the Civil War and World War II. Oh, in, in the Civil War, it was to free slaves, right? In World War II, it was to, you know, overthrow these tyrannies. Like these were good wars that America fought in. And I think that we can kind of um, look at those situations and are taught those in history because there's a neat little bow we can tie on it. Like, oh, we freed slaves and now, you know, look at it. Things aren't so bad. But for the Native American experience, that's not taught at like almost at all. It's like she said, it's kind of like a smaller part of the story about Manifest Destiny and going west. But we don't have a nice pretty bow to put on it. You know, it's not as recognized as a thing. Like, look at the Dakota pipeline or whatever that, that happened. I don't know a lot about that, but holy cow, after reading this book, it's like, man, I should have been involved in that. I should have read about that and learned about that because that's exactly what this book is talking about. Part of this piece that um, was really interesting for me goes back to this idea about demystifying the American myth. And she talks about basically how how this was created and uh, perpetuated. And it was really interesting to me hearing about some of these key figures in history, like even Abraham Lincoln and Barack Obama were not, you know, above the, this rule. 
like Abraham Lincoln pushed some legislation that ended up encouraging people to go west. And and Obama, like in his speech, in his inauguration speech, basically said like something along the lines of like, this land was here for the taking. And, you know, it was our destiny kind of a thing. Just to add on to what you're saying, I mean, you mentioned just a little bit ago that 17 of the United States presidents have been Ulster Scott's lineage um, from Andrew, Andrew Jackson. And that includes Barack Obama also has that lineage. Yeah, just, I just think something to, to mention along this line when we're, we're thinking about like the beginning and some of these original interactions and thinking about the story of America, tribes like the Delaware, which she talks about some converted to Christianity and like really bought in and then were still slaughtered. So it, it's kind of you I, I living on the East Coast now, I, I'm thinking about this a lot that there's a reason why there are so few Native American tribes here. And it's because we've had so much time to like slaughter and commit genocide against these tribes. And no matter what rules we've told them to play by, like, oh, hey, we'll treat you better if you give us land and convert to Christianity. Yeah, guess what? That wasn't that wasn't true. And then, so there's just like any path that people took fighting, trying to convert, trying to make peace, trying to trade like we were there still going to murder them that's very dark but <laughs> that's how i feel no i mean to to kind of agree with you a thought that i had and just to try and put into perspective how this made me feel have you guys seen the hunger games read the books i kind of started to feel like that about it i mean maybe that's a little bit extreme maybe it's not extreme enough i don't know it just depends on how you interpret it but think of that in that you had one central city that had suppressed all these outlying cities and you know we don't have hunger games for the native americans but you know, we think of Native, Native Americans as if they're this kind of ancillary group to this continent, this country that we inhabit, when in fact, she says in the book, had there not been a system of roads and and communication that had existed in the United States before the settlers had gotten here, it's likely that they wouldn't have been able to colonize it. Um, they're, they're a huge part that have been suppressed over time, and now they're a very small part because of that suppression. And that just made me think of the Hunger Games in that, you know, we we have to be aware that maybe that's the way that uh, Americans, as we think of them now, are somewhat looked at and as this largely suppressive group, that they have functioned as that. And that's how we've ended up, as Kurt was talking about, with this limited number of um, of, you know, Native American populations. Yeah, that was something that was also just a consistent theme, though, throughout throughout the entire book. And she talks a lot about Andrew Jackson and kind of the J Jacksonian period. And holy cow, like most of those people that were in power at that time, a lot of them were ex-generals or military personnel. And the way that they got their name was by fighting the Native Americans and oftentimes using total war to kill all of them. Like how many times did she say in this book that like we, the, the common thought at the time was basically extermination is the only way. You always hear everybody talking about president Jackson, right? Especially because in recent memory, they have wanted to replace his likeness on the $20 bill, which, 
you know, I always sort of supported, but I never understood the extent of why people were so against Andrew Jackson. Um, you know, I had read about him loosely in our high school history books, but this book caused me to delve a little deeper. Obviously, I mean, she's pretty thorough about how much of a huge asshole he is, but digging in deeper, it, I mean, her, her academic language in this, I mean, she's just passing over atrocity after atrocity after atrocity with no fluff. You don't have to fluff it up. And, you know, I mean, she paints Andrew Jackson in a pretty damning light. But then when you really look more closely at it, it's like, how could we ever keep this person on a $20 bill? If we want to keep going forward, then we need to put a cap on the past and we need to get him off the $20 bill as well as all these other things. I mean, we're tearing down Confederate statues. We need to tear down Andrew Jackson statues, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, what I also thought of throughout this whole whole time reading about all these atrocities was think about Nazi Germany. What if Nazi Germany won? What would the Holocaust be like? Like, how would that be talked about? Probably mostly forgotten. And I think the reason that most of us don't know about this kind of thing, um, or we kind of know about it, but we still have been indoctrinated into this America is the greatest thing to ever happen to the entire world kind of society. That's what manifest was. Oh, well, it was inevitable that we would make it West. And, you know, we had to because we spread democracy and, and the greatness of America, right? We, we, it had to happen. So the reason that a lot of us don't know about all of this kind of stuff, all of the atrocities that we as Americans did to the native Americans and, the land and everything is just because we won, right? It's it's all okay if you win. That's what it comes down to. Well, and I think it's one of the things, and I don't know if this was something that was mentioned in the book or something that had just crossed my mind on my on its own. But one thing that I looked up while I was reading the book was where did Hitler get the idea for the Holocaust? And one of the articles that popped up was. Uh, titled Ugly Precursor to Auschwitz, Hitler said to have been inspired by U.S. Indian reservation system. And it shows this article and the first it shows this picture at the top. And on the left, you have a trench that's filled with uh, Jewish bodies. And on the right, you have uh, U.S. soldiers posing around a mass grave of dead Dakotas. Um, So what you're saying, not only is it related in, you know, the difference between those things not only is just the fact that it was or was not successful, but, um, you know, one may have been causal to the other. Yeah. Um, one of the quotes that I remember, this is her quoting, uh, Eli Wiesel said the road to Auschwitz was paved in the earliest days of Christendom. And this is basically when she's talking about like the crusades and how white supremacy and Christianity were kind of linked, like the uh, uh, Calvinists or whatever that came over thought that Native Americans or people of other color were demons, basically. And because of that, it was like their quest from God to kind of like condemn these people, which is scary, right? 
like, and that's kind of, I think that's kind of tied into this is it's just like, yeah, go ahead, Kurt. Well, I think just to, to play forward your Holocaust metaphor and what we're talking about, it would be really interesting if, let's see, the Nazis win World War II and in 27, 2018, there's like four German citizens who are sitting around like us having a podcast, reading a book about the Holocaust and think, wow, this is like actually a really bad thing that we did. You know, and, and I, I say this as a joke, obviously, but that's kind of the situation that we're in. And that's why it's really hard to read this book and, and to have conversations about it, because we like it or not, like we're wrapped up in all of this. And that, the book makes some really good points around that. So then it's a real tough way forward when you realize that's the truth, you know, and like that's the weight of, of the atrocities that were committed because because then it just feels silly to be here talking about it, you know, like, I, that's just a thought that I that I'm having right now. So, Rhett. Yeah. And your comparison about, you know, your, your alternative timeline comparison, because for some reason, these things have happened and, and, and it, it's coming more and more into light that that's the way it is. And in fact, you know, we're making changes slowly. I don't think we're making them fast enough. You know, when was it? Only three or four years ago that Congress formally recognized the um, Iroquois Confederacy as one of the primary inspirations for the way that the United States ran its government. What I wanted to ask was, I, w- I want to ask the simple question, why isn't this taught in schools? What is stopping us from going down to the school board meetings and saying, you know, this is history. This is fact. And we've been teaching this whitewash history from a textbook printed in 1977. Why don't we upgrade this and just include, even if it's just mentioning the fact that we were engaged in ethnic cleansing? I think uh, one of the challenges to that is, you know, we're looking at Andrew Jackson, for example, and we grew up thinking that a person like Andrew Jackson is a hero of this nation that we live in now. And I think it's really challenging to look at your heroes and say, they're not heroes. They were bad people. And what I have now was stolen from somebody else. That's a really, really hard reality to face. And one of the most impactful thoughts that I had while reading this book was actually the day that I finished the book, uh, Marie and I were getting dinner with my folks in Canby. And, you know, it's like I just read about uh, Captain Jack. And um, I was like, I wonder if Canby is named after the General Canby um, that is responsible for some of the atrocities against the Modoc tribes. And it is. And I even texted Kurt that day and I was like, we have these conversations about taking down Confederate statues. And yet we have our own existing Confederate statues here in Oregon. You know, we have a, a city that we all know well that is named for somebody who did terrible things. And that's a really hard thing to look at. And I think that's why I don't think people want to be that uncomfortable and that is to not you can't say that that um, 
you can say that it should change, but you you can't say that it's it should change and it's easy to change. I think we have to recognize that making that change is going to be hard and uncomfortable for people. And that's kind of why we have this resistance to have it happen. I think it's also just because America wants to perpetuate its myth as being this great nation. Because, like as she points out, like the frontier now isn't on our home soil. It's across the globe. And so we don't want, we being the American government, we don't want the people to be woke, I would say. <laughs> uh, we want people to be blissfully ignorant so that we can continue these ventures of exploitation of other nations or other natural resources or whatever. I mean, all, like from the very beginning of this book, it's all about capturing resources, capturing land. And we don't have an easy way nowadays to just capture land, uh, at least like we did back then. So we have to be more creative, I guess. We have these uh, program, like secretive programs that are basically professional militaries that are hired to kind of do our bidding and wage these new these wars on new frontiers in a much more cryptic and secretive way. I think it's just the America wanting to continue that. You can hopefully maybe chime in with this because I was thinking a lot about games without rules when I was reading mm -hmm. this. And it's not necessarily that, you know, that the British visited genocide on the afghanis however it's that same sort of like counterinsurgency warfare that's talked about over and over and over and over again and counterinsurgent it's interesting because it's it's a word that you heard a lot especially when we were kids kind of at the at the beginning of uh the second gulf war you know they talk the war on terror yeah, yeah. The, war, the war on terror <laughs> why why are all of our policies a war on something we have the war on poverty the war on drugs the war on terrorism it's like is that all we know how to do oh my god we suck anyways that's not what i wanted to say but <laughs> but you look at how the british handled their relations in afghanistan and it's almost identical tactics to how we that we executed against the indigenous people of the americas bribing people and and, and constantly putting them into situations where you know we're constantly breaking our treaties and we're doing all these things we're breaking our promises we're going back we are we are hunting and murdering as many innocent people as we can possibly find and then we are putting these people into situations, you know, I, I, looking at the Civil War, for example, where uh, thousands of indigenous people thought that allying themselves with the Confederate states would weaken the United States and thus allow them to continue. That's the same thing that Britain did in Afghanistan. And I'm sure other uh, imperial powers did in other places. And it's almost never worked out for the best. Yet, why do they continue to... I mean, obviously, I guess it did work out for the United States because here we are, a superpower, and we're continuing to exploit 
resources and do all these things. But it didn't work out for England, for Britain, and Afghanistan. And I'm sure it didn't work out all over the world time and time again like this. It led to atrocity after atrocity, or it led to... It's interesting that we continue to employ these tactics even today. Yet we can't look at history the last 500 years and go, oh, yeah, that didn't work very well. <laughs> it's this like interventionist idea that like we know the best route. And it's always just pumping money into the situation, pumping money and resources and personnel. And we're, we're trying to get people to fight each other. You know, it's like we're training in Afghanistan. We're training the Afghanis to root out terrorists themselves and do all this stuff. And it, it's just ruins everything around us. This book really takes capitalism. And I mean, it basically looks like one of those, like Scrooge McDuck or whatever. Like, there's just no no personality or no empathy for anything. All it comes down to is the bottom line, acquiring land and resources. And the sad part is, I think when we get to the end of the book you start kind of realizing that, yeah, that's basically where we are now. We're kind of like in a post-colonialist status, our time, where like the obvious colonies are have already been colonized, conquered. So now we have to do it in this more subtle way. And maybe that's by spreading democracy or whatever, spreading our capitalist ideals so that we can basically do what we did to the Native Americans. Like we saw what happened to the Native Americans when they tried to, you know, incorporate some of these European practices into their their societies. We basically create this reliance on on our ways and then we rip it from them so that we can exterminate them and capture their resources. Go ahead, Rhett. That is an excellent segue into the number one question that I have at the top of my notes, which is, are we, I mean, you, like you, you said, we are living kind of in a post-colonial time. However, are these colonial practices now being used on, I, I don't want to say us as though we're separate from indigenous or other ethnicities but now in everyday common joe blow america are we sort of being colonized because we are being forced to be reliant on capitalism and all of these other things in fact you know look at look at this idea of bartering in the modern states you're supposed to claim on your taxes any sort of bartering that you have done your your neighbor is an auto mechanic he fixes your car and in exchange you go and fix his computer or you go and i don't know change a bearing and his dryer because it's squeaking or some garbage or you mow his lawn a hundred times or you paint his house or whatever it might be you guys exchange these services you're supposed to now claim that on your taxes for some reason and the same thing with the power grid you know if you install solar panels or you have uh, like non-centralized power generation and they find out you know like you just have to keep paying the power company as though like you <laughs> you're claiming electricity from the grid. Like, even if you separate yourself from the grid, you have to pay the freaking company that has a monopoly in your area. So we are being forced to be reliant on these things. And then if they get taken away, we're screwed. We're going to die. 
What if the transportation infrastructure falls apart? Do I mean, Danny's probably fine as an ag guy. He knows how to grow his food. But the rest <laughs> of us, we're, we're, we're SOL. <laughs> you know? I don't know how to freaking garden. It's I don't not know that to... hard. <laughs> well, I know. I'm, I'm sure I've got a book in my house that can teach me how to do it. Or I'm a block away from the library. I'll just go down there and do it the old-fashioned way. But, but the average Joe American doesn't know that and they wouldn't know how to protect their crops as they're growing them they wouldn't know how to make their clothes nobody would know how to distill crude oil into gasoline to run your car you know it's like all of these things we're forced to be reliant on other people and 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 it kind of ties into the idea of specialization that's presented in sapiens but but it screws us and we saw it as a tool for ethnic cleansing during the you know against the indigenous people of the americas can that be leveraged against average Joe Blow American today? I mean, the answer is yes, but are we being colonized? I don't know. Go ahead, Kurt. <laughs> well, first of all, whenever Rhett talks about bartering, I have to take a drink. So, <laughs> but I, I, I honestly was going back and forth as you were explaining that because I think part of me is like, oh my gosh, this is so true. But, but I think another part of me is like, well, I don't want to take up too much of our time talking about like how we are persecuted using the same system. So while I think it's a good point and like we should be having a conversation around how global capital markets like lock us out of certain things and make us dependent on the, the state and the system, like it might not, this time might be better for like the, the people who are still suffering. And just to circle back to something um, more towards the beginning of the book, one of the most gruesome chapters in this book is called um, Bloody Footprints. And it was something that I was just reading through. I know we talked about this. I had uh, some colored uh, sticky taps that I would stick on things that impacted me in one way or another or caused a certain emotion. So there was orange, blue, yellow, green, and pink. So pink was a hot take, whatever that means. <laughs> yellow was something I found interesting Green was good, blue was sad, orange was uh, something I found despicable or just very appalling. And I use a lot of orange in this chapter. One of the things in the history of me consuming sports that I have been somewhat ambivalent towards, just haven't had much of an opinion on, is the use of uh, certain Native American tribal names in sports teams' names. There's there's a part in here where they talk about redskins and my interpretation of redskins has always been that it was commenting on the actual color of the skin of native Americans. And it goes through to talk about how there was a system set in place by the United States where there was a bounty basically on how many scalps of native Americans you brought in. They wanted people to go out and on their own kill native Americans that bring their scalps in, which she feeds into the second amendment, which I don't want to get into here, but I think is very interesting. Um, but Redskins, it's not talking about the color of their skin. They gave the name Redskin to the bloody mutilated corpses that resulted from this system of bounties being placed on native American bodies. And that was very gruesome. Uh, I'd never heard that perspective before. And, and I felt very saddened by that passage. Yeah, that was rough. I think so. There's a lot 
there's a lot of this stuff that's currently in our society, you know, racist terms uh, or just very horrible terms that we don't even really think of that kind of perpetuate this, uh, you know, myth of, well, not myth, but just it perpetuates this idea of us conquering the Native Americans and that they're lesser than you know, white Americans or whatever. And it's great. Yeah. Sorry, just to cut in. One of the things I would want to add to that is one of the counter arguments to the Redskins keeping their name is, well, it's, we're honoring them. You're not honoring them. The term Redskins is equivalent to the N word. Right. There's no honor in that. Earlier, we were kind of going into the conversation of of what, what we should do about all this and then how we feel. And, a huge part of that, I just want to commend Danny in a giant way, is like taking time and care to really internalize these stories and pay attention and read deeply. And just when you're describing your method for how you were categorizing this information, and I, I know you sent a couple photos around of your book, I was just like, that everyone should do that. You know, like, okay, yeah, what, what we do policy-wise or what we advocate for after that, great. That's that's step two, but step one, I just want to commend you for like really digging in, and yeah, I think that is like a, a model that um, has been inspiring to me, and I think readers of this book should also think of that as like the gold standard for how to how to really take in this book because uh, there's just so much. I, but just also then to to put uh, another way of saying what you're talking about there with the scalping, like we're paying people to murder. Like the U.S. government is is rewarding murder in this in with this system, uh, and of women and children. And eventually, we scaled back the children, but then they said you couldn't really tell when this, you know, what scalp. So I, I, I just okay. I was just saying I can't imagine what that would do to come back home or to learn that like your uncle or cousin or whole family has just been murdered by the government and they've been paid. Like the the murderer has been paid and rewarded. Yeah, I was. You took the words out of my mouth. It's it's crazy. And Danny talks about the number. Well, the I forget which color it was to represent despicable, but that's something in my notes that I wrote all the time. The the craziest that like this will just show. I guess my political. Oh, I wrote despicable a lot. I also write like, wow, this reminds me of Trump. But I do, I do like your idea, Danny, of doing that because I think it quantifies things, and it's important to be data data oriented today because because of things like fake news and all this kind of crap. Um, so I think that's a really good good way of like trying to parse this data. And for me, like this book in general, is really kind of hard to talk about because there's just so much packed into it that you almost like start not like glazing over, but you're just like, God, there are so many atrocities over and over and over and over that sound very similar to the last one. It's just hard to even like begin dealing with. So I think if you start categorizing that into like numbers, it might be easier to just see the impact. Yeah. And I ran out of, uh, what did I have? Five colors. I ran out of three of them. Does anybody want to guess which one I ran out of first? Orange. Orange. 
<laughs> yeah, it was orange. <laughs> you anybody want to guess which one had a lot left over? Yellow. <laughs> Remember the colors? Yellow was interesting, which I had a lot of, but green was good, and I didn't. I had plenty of those left over. Yeah, probably three green tabs used throughout the whole book. <laughs> yeah, more or less. Well, I think that that um, brings us to a good point to kind of take a quick break. Um, we've talked about a lot, but uh, we need to have a little little chance to recharge here, take some breaks. So thank you guys for hanging with us. We'll be back for part two here in a moment. 